Let's do that twice more. Pray it. Pray it. You and God. Last time, let's pray it as a community. Look around the room as you pray. You do this as a community. You believe together. Let's hear a hand clap for our Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I hope you're as inspired as I am this morning. You know, before you sit down, I want to say this and say this to the worship team, too, that, Corey, I think my favorite thing about preaching is getting to stand up and tell people, remind people that Jesus genuinely, authentically, hugely loves you. That's my reminder to you this morning. Do you believe that? Amen. You may be seated in his presence. Thank you, worship team. Father, we pray this morning that you will come near to our hearts in ways that only you can. You are uniquely the way, the truth, and the life. And you love us more than we can ever ask or imagine. Thank you for that reminder this morning. Thank you for the music that draws our hearts to you. Thank you for inventing music to bring us close to what we'll experience in heaven, the heavenly choir. Wow, looking forward to that. Father, we look forward to what you have for us in the word today. Let your, let your spirit rise. Let me decrease while you increase. And your word become the word in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the Lord's people said, amen. Amen. Keep coming on in, folks, in the back there. Welcome to you all online. Thrilled to have you here. I wish you were here because you would see a beautiful harbor that is etched with snow on its boundaries. And and uh, still waters. Uh, come join us as soon as you can. It, this is a great, great venue. Is it not? Isn't this a great place to be together? Nothing beats worship face to face. Well, as we move into the upper room again this morning in our series, The Beloved Community, as we move into the upper room, we're just hours away from the cross. We're, we're going to be for 12 weeks total in John 13 through 17. And this morning we get to begin in the very first verse through the 14th verse of John chapter 14. And as we're in the upper room, as Jesus is with his disciples, we find the Lord acknowledging the frightened, troubled hearts of his disciples. Look at verse 1 with me. <clears throat> and here, in the, here at the BMI, just pull out your phones and look at your Bibles, or if you have your Bibles with you, look at them, verses 1 to 14. But look at verse 1. Jesus begins this way in this section. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And I know as I look around the room this morning, personally and just intuitively, that many of us are suffering from troubled hearts. Many of us are suffering from fearful hearts and agitated hearts and despairing hearts because of the circumstances that surround us in this time. And I want you to know that Jesus is speaking to you every bit in the same way he is speaking to those disciples in the upper room, Mary Lou. He is speaking to you and me with love do not let your hearts be troubled. Let's look at why. Now, the disciples were afraid in Jerusalem that night. The Pharisees were determined to enlist the state to eliminate Jesus and all of his disciples. They were, frankly, in real physical danger, and they knew it. But more than the physical danger, Ling, they were terrified by his words about leaving them. This we saw in, in chapter 13. They loved doing life with him. They could even imagine dying with him, 
but they could not bear to live or die without him. They were terrified by the potential loss. So he loves them, saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And I'm struck particularly by these words, let not, because it implies that these disciples could actually respond in some significant way to their problem. How? Well, he gets right into it. He says, believe in God. We just sang that. Believe in God, he says. He, he's saying, believe in a God who is still in control, who knows what he's doing. And he says, believe also in me. You've had three years with me. Do you trust me? Believe in me, he says. Why? Because, as we'll see and unpack, he is the way by which the resource and the power of the Father is made available to all of us. He is saying, let not your hearts be troubled because we got this. The Father and me, we got this. It's fraught and danger lies ahead, even death, even the cross, but we got this. And church, this dynamic relationship between Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit is so fundamental uh, that everything else in these chapters, right, Corey, will grow out of these, this relationship. And it's a relationship that ought to be mirrored by and accessed by the beloved community, by you and me and all who name Christ in this city and in this world. So I'm working from the title this morning, The Way to the Father. The Way to the Father for the beloved community would be a subtitle, but The Way to the Father. And, and we're going to see along the way in verses 1 to 14, we're going to find the promise, we're going to find the portal, we're going to find the purpose, uh, and then finally we're going to find a process uh, that will surprise us at the very end. So let's look at verses 2 to 4 and, and see the promise, the promise that we just sang about. And Jesus says this, My Father's house has many rooms, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now we most often, Corey, hear these curious words from Jesus uh, in the context of a funeral, right? Uh, and the Father's heavenly home we hear about at funerals. Outside of funerals, frankly, we often feel a little bit awkward talking about heaven and death. And, and when we must think about that, it, it produces a little bit of anxiety in us. But I want you to know this morning that the Bible is not at all reluctant to remind us of our mortality. <laughs> the Bible does it over and over again. It tells us that our life is really rather brief. What is your life? It asks, and it gives a variety of answers. Life is like a mist. It appears in the early morning and then dissolves. Our life is like the chaff and the wind blows it away. Our life is like water that spills on the ground and sinks into the sand. We're like grass that withers, like a flower that fades in the heat, like a dream in the night that disappears after breakfast. Life is like a sigh, the Bible says. It says it's just a puff of breath. And it's over. There's at least eight metaphors there, as I count them, for the, that the biblical writers use to signal to us our mortality. The text is neither, is neither meant to be trivial nor terrifying, but rather resolute, that we come to terms with our mortality. And we're called to do this over and over again as we grow up. So when our time comes, something the Bible terms going the way of all flesh, we should be ready. But I wonder, Grace City, if you've ever made note of an essential differentiation that the Bible makes over and over again. Although it's important to come to terms with our mortality, as we've just seen, it's very important never, never, never to come to terms with death. Stay with me. 
Because death is an unnatural intrusion into God's creation design. It's the way, death is the way toward the penalty of sin. And it has no part in God's original purpose for us. And it has no part in his ultimate purpose for us as we rise to a deathless immortality promises of the scripture. So Jesus, you might remember, snorted with indignation. He was angry in John chapter 11 at the death of Lazarus and how people were coming around that. He was outraged by it in verse 33 because it was alien. It was hostile to humankind. So the beloved community who know Christ, all of us by way of grace and mercy in Christ, have been given a new perspective on death. I mean, it's still like a scorpion, but its sting has been extracted. Do you remember? It's still like a military conqueror, but its victory is now broken. Its power is broken. This is why the Apostle Paul can shout triumphantly in the scripture, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? <clears throat> and we're even, in a sense, Nicole, looking forward to it. Do we know this? Not, not in itself, but because it's a gateway to our life in Father's heavenly home. The home of the Father sounds pretty good, does it not? So the apostle writes, Paul writes with a sense of longing in Philippians 1. Take a look on your screen. For me to live is Christ, he says, that's great. And to die is gain, he says, also great. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully in Mere Christianity. He wrote, if I find in myself, see if this relates to you. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I love that. Do you ever feel that? I was made for something greater. And indeed we were. So here we find Jesus' uniquely beautiful description of heaven as his father's home. And we Christians often refer to it as going home. And so it is. That's exactly what it is. The best this world can ever offer us is a, gl a brief glimpse, church, of our true homeland with Christ. I often think, and Jen and Bob will think of this with me, I often think of Grace City's own Clinton Hughes. Clinton had been homeless, homeless for 40 of his 67 years. And before we celebrated his homegoing a few years ago, he found a foretaste of his heavenly home here in the beloved community of Grace City. And I was honored to preach his funeral as we celebrated his going home. And it's always a sad celebration, but it's always both when we know where we're going. These promises of Jesus show our true home is yet ahead. It's yet ahead for all of us. And I defy you to embrace the promises we see in these verses of Jesus and say that they're no help to our troubled heart. He promises, just look back at these verses in 2 through 4. He promises, number one, Corey, a prepared place. It may be unknown, but it's not unprepared. We have reservations. Somebody say reservations. And the best B&B &B there is. He's, he, he secondly promises to come back and take us with him. He's going to be our escort. And he's not talking about his appearances to the 500 days after the resurrection. He's not talking about Pentecost. He's not even talking about his second coming. Here he is talking about a personal coming to each one of us at death. Our escort. And then thirdly, he says, so that you might be where I am. He's going to be our host. He's going to be present, ever present. So Jesus goes ahead of us to prepare. He comes back to fetch us, and he takes us with him to where he is going to be. 
And listen, I get this stuff about heaven, Brendan. You're probably like me. Many of us are filled with curiosity about what heaven's going to be like. What are the details of heaven? I know I am. I mean, I'd like to know if the streets of the New Jerusalem are going to be paved in gold. I mean, that'll be fun. You know, if so, what carrot is it? You know, is it 14? Is it 24? I don't know. I'd, frankly, Alan, I'd like to find out what we're going to do all day in heaven. I mean, that still perplexes me. But, but the details, Yvonne, pale in comparison, right? They pale into insignificance in the comparison with what we're told in the book of Revelation, that heaven is filled with the presence of Christ. And, and it reminds me of when we do premarital counseling with an engaged couple, we say, hey, are you, do you all taking a honeymoon? We say, yeah, we can't decide, you know. We've, we've had these ongoing discussions about where to take our honeymoon, and, you know, some are too far and some are too costly, and we just don't know yet. And then they look at each other inevitably and say, but as long as I'm with you, it doesn't matter where we are. We can go to Cleveland, and I'll be okay. Heard that once in premarital counseling. But don't you feel the same about heaven, Rishima? The details, I don't mind the details, as long as we're in the presence of Christ. That, that's heaven. That's what we know. And that's good. As long as we're together. So church, I would say in this first section here with the promises of Jesus about his heavenly home, travel as light as you can in your expectations and your possessions on this side of heaven. Don't waste precious time and resources trying to make earth your forever home. This is not a Zillow search. I know many of you are looking for that forever home on Zillow. This is not what this is. We have reservations at our forever home. And Jesus finishes this section with this. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And this causes all kinds of riddles and consternation. And it leads to our second point this morning about the portal. The portal on the way to the Father. Thomas says this in response. Well, Jesus, actually, look at verse 5. Actually, he says, we don't really know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I love Thomas. Don't you love Thomas? I don't know if I'd call him Doubting Thomas. I'd just call him Real Thomas. Anyway, Jesus, Jesus answered, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we just sang it. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, yes, you do know, Thomas. You know. You've been with me. I am the way. Jesus doesn't just show the way, church. He is the way. And once we know Christ, we know the way to heaven and to the Father's home. Most of the time, Jesus tells his disciples throughout his ministry with them and walking with them for three years, most of the time he says, you know, you think you get it, but you really don't. And he proceeds to explain himself again. But here it's the reverse. Thomas is saying, we don't know. And he says, yes, you do. You've known since you've known me. He tells them they know the way because they know him. And he even, Corey, uses the Old Testament formulation, I am. These were words, no Jew would miss the significance of these words, but no Jew could even utter them. This is the unspeakable, the I am, the Yahweh, the, the I am God. He, Jesus is saying, I am. He's, he's using the very name of God about himself. I'm God, and I'm the way. And you know me, so you know the way. The answer to your doubts, Thomas, the answer to your doubts, Nicole, the, the, the answer to your doubts, Ling, the answer to your doubts, Jess, the answer to your doubts, Bob, is staring you in the face. Trust me, he says. Believe in me. And of course he's saying he's uniquely the way to heaven. Could it be anything else? Because only he can chart the course and prepare the place. How? Why? Because that's dying on the cross. That's what the cross is about. Who else can do that? Who else can show the way? 
Who else can prepare the place? He didn't say that any particular ethic or doctrine would, would show the way or was the way. He, he said that he was. He didn't say that by doing anything in particular, we, we could find the way, we could come to the Father. He said that it was only by him, by living in him, participating in him, being caught up in him. Because Why? Because our sin, our sin is so serious. Capital offense. Who else could have died for us? Who else could have paid the penalty? Who else could be that way? In order that we be forgiven and be given the right to become children of God. Who else? Now, I know what you're thinking. I know the questions you're asking. What about others, Bob? How does this reality of Jesus being the unique portal, the only way to heaven, work in my reality here on earth? I've got lots of questions. What about, what about good people? <clears throat> what about my Aunt Jane, who... Admittedly, she said she was never a religious woman, but she held our family together. What about, what about the folks who've never heard what you're preaching this morning? What about Gandhi? I always hear, the question always comes to me about Gandhi, right, Scott? I mean, it's, Gandhi's got to be there, right? Well, Grace City, it, it, there's so much in this passage, right? Here's where I rest in these words of Jesus. Here's what I know. <clears throat> Everyone you encounter in heaven, Everyone you encounter in heaven will be there because of what happened outside the walls of Jerusalem on that first Good Friday, just hours from now in our setting, on that lonely hill called Calvary. Everyone will be there because of that cross. This is the singular point of the cross. It alone is the power that reconciles human beings to God, one of our mission statements. No one, no one will be there because they measure up. And I thank God for that because I don't measure up. There's no divine Olympic team that you try out for and make the team. Thank, somebody say, thank God. Because not many of us make that team. And here's who, here's who I trust in this. I trust God to accomplish this, heaven, in whatever way he so chooses, with whomever he so chooses. I trust him with that. And, and to make use of me along the way in small or big ways, I am quite confident, Grace City, that I will be wonderfully surprised by who I see in heaven. Because God always has surprised me since I met him at 14 years old. He's always surprised me. So I'll be surprised. I'll be surprised. And I'm confident that whoever I see there will be there like me because of the cross. God will do that whatever way he wants. All right, we've unpacked. You can take me to coffee and ask me more about this. We've unpacked his promises of heaven. We've, we've come face to face with the only portal to heaven. Now let's see the purpose of it all. Look at verse 12 with me, if you would, the purpose. As the reality of the cross looms just hours from now, Jesus says this. Very truly, I and he's saying it to you and me, as well as his disciples. So take this person. Somebody say personally. Take it personally. Very truly, I tell you, Grace City, that the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Wow. This is one of the most startling declarations in all of Scripture. Jesus is saying now, he's just talked about heaven, but now he says, wait, wait, before you rise up and let go of earth, there is much to do. 
There's much to do, and I'm giving you an assignment. And if anyone other than Jesus had said these words, it would be blasphemy, right? I mean, greater works than Jesus? Really? But it's Jesus talking. Now, notice the reason that Jesus gives for these greater works. It's because he's going to the Father. And when he goes to the Father, and Corey's going to unpack this next week in the Scripture, he's going to send his Holy Spirit to be our advocate. And we'll get into that next week. But know this, at this point, that the Spirit in us is the key ingredient to this promise of greater works. As the risen Lord, Jesus, who dwells in us by means of his Spirit, he will do greater things through us than he did when he was here in the flesh. So what are these greater works? That's a great question. What are these greater works? Great City, this cannot be about greater singular miracles. That's not what it's about. Can you think of anything greater than raising the dead? I mean, it's not about that. Of course, there have been such physical miracles since the cross and resurrection. You only have to read through the book of Acts. You only have to have lived a little while to hear, but not greater in the singular way. Something else is on Jesus' mind here for the beloved community to participate in greater works. The only answer that makes any sense at all is that Jesus is speaking of works in the Spirit that are greater in space and time. Now, stay with me on this because we're getting theological. As you read the gospel account of Jesus' ministry, notice that Large crowds followed him while he was healing. Large crowds, when, when he would appear, entire cities would turn out to listen to him. Yet by the end of his life, on this night, this Thursday night before the cross, the crowds have left. Maybe a hundred people are following Jesus at this point. Only a handful of them will show up at the cross and stand with him there. So the ones who've been healed or fed, or raised by Jesus, and the ones who witnessed these miracles across Palestine, they wouldn't stand with him at the cross at this point. But just days later, weeks later, when the disciples went out and preached in the power of the Spirit, they won converts by the thousands. Greater works. I mean, later on this night, and we'll preach it later, Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, take a look on your screen at home, you did not choose me. He's, he's directing this whole thing, right? I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. That's our job description. You see, he was itinerant. He moved from city to city. He didn't, he didn't do much follow-up. He healed Jairus' daughter, but he didn't counsel her the next day. This is our job. These are examples of greater works as, as the Spirit continues to bring millions to know Christ. And make no mistake, because of the Holy Spirit, there are greater works in you as well because of the greater dimensions of kingdom work. These, these greater works come in the length and the breadth and, and, and the tenacity even of the works that uniquely belong to the beloved community, to all of us together and beyond Grace City. Look at Grace City, though, alone this week. Corey mentioned it in our welcome. Dozens of folks representing Grace City and other fellowships came alongside Miss Melvina, who lost a son to violence this past week, following and, and promised and will follow up with her. They put resources in her pocket. They put embraces around her and her family, and they are still going on. This is a greater work. This is our work. We don't typically feed 5,000 in one meal, but guess what, Grace City? You're feeding 800 children in Managua today and tomorrow and Tuesday. And this, because of your resources, your generosity, did you know we're feeding 800 children every day? We are. 
And many other partners have joined to feed thousands in Nicaragua every day with this Orphan Network network. It's the network makes for greater works. We're partners with, with Digital Harbor, Mary Lou, right? And, and, and that partnership goes on every year. It doesn't just hit and run. It, it goes on. The partnership with Sharp Leadenhall, Lil, goes on and on for 13 years now. It goes on through the ambassadorship of Lil Gurney. It goes on. The We Are Us engagement works every Monday, Thursday, Saturday, and days in between, and it's getting bigger and larger. It shows up, it follows up, it puts out resources, it feeds, it, 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 it intervenes in violent situations. We don't know how many are saved from murder in this city, because you can never count that. We just know we have a job to do to stop all the murder in the city, and we will be there until it stops. That's the greater work. That's the tenacity. The flavor group, planning, logo, Tolu and, and Ling, the, the, for unity with one another, what's begun will never stop. It grows and grows and grows until we get it right. Church, even our most mundane activities must be seen against this declaration of Jesus. Greater works, Alan. Greater works when small groups meet together in their neighborhoods over and over and over again and pray for their neighbors and pray for each other and come around each other in the office and the neighborhood. This is the theology of presence. Do you know this term? Being present over and over. Greater works by following up, by being present. You gotta love it. Greater works you will do. So in this context, where we're all called to be on point for ever greater dimensions of our calling, and we are privileged to participate in these huge works of a lifetime for the sake of the cross, now listen as we close, and I want the worship team to come up and begin playing, but I still got some words for you, because not only do we have this, this um, purpose, but there's a process that Jesus ends with here before you unpack some more for us next week, Corey, and this process comes in verse 14. So here it is. He says this, last line, are you ready? You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Wow. There's, some, there's four heavy theological pillars in this passage. Here's the last one. Now, the Greek helps us here because the first translation of this word is, I will act on it. It's not convenient for us in English, so we, we translate it, I will do it. Please. I will act on it. I will carry it out. Now, we love these amazing words, don't we? We love this. We often read them, though, without careful thought of the context, and we're seized by the tremendous possibilities of this word, anything. So the shallow Christian will run out and say, cool, I can finally get that Range Rover I've been wanting. But James reminds us in his epistle, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And we all go, oh, sigh, yeah, my motives aren't very good there. So we get that. We get that. Still praying for that Range Rover. No, 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 not true. Grace City, listen, I have no objection to adding these words to our prayers. But there, there is an important theological construct behind his teaching in my name. So what does in Jesus' name mean? My first thought as a young Christian that was learning anything was that praying in Jesus' name meant praying for the things he wanted accomplished. And it does mean that. But we get tempted to think that when we tack this on at the end of a meaningful, noble prayer, that it's some kind of magic formula to get, to get things done, to get good things done. But there's more to it, Grace City, that I want to leave you with this morning, in my name. When we declare in the name of Jesus, we are saying, for the sake of. We are saying, 
by the authority of. It's as if we've been sent as an ambassador to another kingdom. And we say, in the name of Grace City Church, I say this. And we're representing something bigger than us. It's same here. We mustn't think that praying in his name gives us the capacity to somehow direct the process by which these things come to pass. This is not the case. Jesus remains the director. He's directing his own death in the upper room as we speak these words. It's just hours away. He's the director. Church, to pray in Jesus' name means to stand in Jesus' place. It, it's representing him. And where was Jesus standing when he said these words? Facing the cross. Standing facing the cross. Now, in that context, Grace City, if these disciples were praying for anything, do you know what they were praying for? They were praying hard that he would live beyond tomorrow. In Jesus' name, don't go to the cross. That's what they wanted. But Jesus knew the cross had to be. He was directing. Praying in Jesus' name, church, means that you accept the process of God even when his process brings matters to utter despair. Because in God's economy, that is never the end of the story, right? Jesus knew that beyond the cross lay the resurrection and that there could never be a new beginning if there were not first an end to sin and death, an end to death. That is why it often seems as though God waits until the very last minute to answer our prayer. That is why he even takes our prayers in an entirely different direction because he's directing. Prayer is not merely a shield to prevent bad things from happening, and it's not merely uh, uh, an access to, to, to get the things we want. To pray in Jesus' names means you consent to his process. And to pray in Jesus' names is a commitment to go to the end with him, to bear the troubles and the failures of life, and to know, as we learned at the beginning, he's got this. He's got it. Do you believe it? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. We got this. So he calls to you and me at Grace City Church this morning. He says to you again, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because we got this. It's hard, I know. But that's why I've gone to the cross. I know. So pick up your cross this morning, Grace City. Stand up. Everybody stand up. We're going to sing. Pick up your cross as you stand up. Stand with him. Represent him. This is our heavenly call. And you know the way to heaven because of him. Take some folks with you. We are called to be that kind of ambassador. Let's sing about being called to be this morning. Love you, Grace City. Let's sing.